Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 257 Finding the Future in the Past. We're joined again by scholar and teacher John Peacock to continue exploring the core insights that come from a critical inquiry into early Buddhism. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Now, Buddhism, if anything, has become known in, uh, in, the, in, in the modern era as a huge not just a system of philosophy, but also as a huge collection of uh, methods yeah. to work uh, with with our minds and hearts, to train attention, yes. to uh, to deepen and expand awareness and so forth. Now, what would you say if we look at the early teachings, if we look at the work of the historical Buddha himself, what is at the core of his training? What is the principal the principal few features of his method that that he that he basically recommends and encourages his uh, his students to work with. Again, it's not a, it's not as easy a picture as saying as one thing. I think it's again it's an amalgam of things. I mean, mm-hmm. at the heart of it is living together in community, which is mm-hmm. obviously the early sangha was doing. Yeah, and at the heart of that message is ethics. You know, so if you look through the discipline, um, even the paramoka. Yes. Yes. Discipline, what you find is ethical ways of being with each other. Yes. That's very much emphasised. Meditation is another important aspect, but meditation is training. Mm-hmm. It's not an end in itself. Mm-hmm. And as you know, the, um, the, the early texts really centre around two, two dimensions of meditational practice, which is really primarily the, the Satipatthana methods, Mm. associated with what now has become called mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of mind, and mindfulness of this obscure word called dhammas, which really is almost untranslatable, mm-hmm. um, which can, is, is really just phenomena. Or, or experience, right? It's the phenomena of experience, that's right. Yes, yes. And it's actually investigation in some dimensions also of the teaching, because it's, mm-hmm. it's the four truths, too. Mm-hmm. So you have this as another key component, and the other aspect of it is concentration. Mm-hmm. And concentration is wedded somehow within the practice, and um, over the history of Buddhism, there's much, much discussion about how much concentration is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, the Buddha seems to vacillate often between that, because you see in his own personal life experience, there's a condemnation, for example, of a formless absorption practice. Yes. You know, he moves away from teachers who teach that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, he seems to condone it to a certain extent because it leads to a degree of insight. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's another key area uh, of, um, of really the Buddha's teaching in a certain dimension. And, mm-hmm. of course, the third dimension, which is almost doing it traditionally here, is Sila Samadhi and Panya. Um, Panya, of course, is the insight that's generated. But insight, I think here, I think we have to move away from an intellectualist approach to it. Mm. Yeah, because 
all too often, and particularly by the time you get into the Indian schools and you know, sort of anywhere from about the second century onwards, they're starting to look at insight, panya or prajna as it is in, in Sanskrit, uh, from very much an intellectualist point of view, almost like you can think your way to reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's clear that the Buddha is not saying that at all. Meditation is a key component, as I say, of the training, because it helps to familiarize yourself with, with literally what is going on in your own mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the insight which is really talking about is an embodied way of living, if you like, in permanence. Mm-hmm. Uh, an embodied way of living the not-self. Mm-hmm. And an embodied way of living, if we're going to complete the circle here, uh, an embodied way of living dukkha, of living you know, the fact that things are unsatisfactory. So it's like knowing by being what you're trying to know. Exactly, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not knowing, I mean, if I was making a distinction, it's not knowing that mm-hmm. there are these things, it's knowing how. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And that's a, quite an important distinction because, again, it comes back to this practical aspect. We can so easily go off, and this is, again, another trap of the human mind into intellectualist constructions. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the Buddha is saying it's the stuff of actual experience that we should be with. Actually being there, actually embodying our understanding, and that's probably a, a good translation, actually, of, of panya as opposed to wisdom. Yes. Then makes it sound sort of so far off that none of us can really get there. True. Um, but it's how do you live your understanding? Yes. So it's again very much about being practical. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Hmm. And you know, there's so much, unfortunately, mistranslation of terms that have almost come down historically to us, which keep getting almost parroted. Mm-hmm. Um, and one I've been very keen to try and move away from, just again to, to, to gloss this for a second, is to move away from metta as being translated as loving kindness, mm-hmm. yeah, which is a standard thing. And that sounds almost like an impossibility, you know, to love everybody. You know, it's, it's almost very Christian, and I can see why it's become popular. Mm-hmm. But what's you know, metta and the root it derives from in Pali and Sanskrit is a sense of um, friendliness. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's actually better translated as something like boundless friendliness, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, putting it into the realms of what people can actually do is something that's achievable. Mm. Now, you, you mentioned something which is, which is my personal concern also, which is translation. Right. Now, at the, at, the, at the beginnings of West meets Buddhism uh, process, there was a strong emphasis on trying to fit certain uh, meanings into a very arcane, uh, as you said, Christian theological framework. That's right. And then, gently and slowly, uh, many translators uh, began to move away from that model into a more contemporary uh, uh, vocabulary. And yes. uh, now it seems that we are about to need another refreshment in the in the vocabulary to make it more shall i say psychologically practical yeah and perhaps less idealistic i think this is very true i think we're into a possibly another wave of translation now mm. um particularly people um who may be looking at translating from more of a secularist point of view mm-hmm. um moving away from religious terminology altogether 
and with your own experience and seeing mm. how the two come together. So it's, it's, it's at best the sacredness of inquiry. I think so, yes. If you're going to have sacredness anywhere, put it there as, you know, I think um, Heidegger calls it the piety of the question. Mm -hmm. And an open-ended one, right? And it's an open-ended one because it's an investigation into experience. Yeah, yeah. Even, even things which we consider to be uh, almost rule-driven are actually um, tools for inquiry. Yeah, mm -hmm. Precepts, mm -hmm. you know, for example. Precepts are not absolute rules. They're rules of training, as the actual Pali says. Yeah. They're rules of training to help you engage with ethical inquiry. Yeah. And I think if we lose that, we end up with your calcified model. Yes, yes. Yeah, what we've got is something, I think, in, in the early text, which is living and dynamic, and obviously it's very centered in its historical, cultural condition. But I think that's transferable, because if we engage with our societies in the same way with which the Buddha engaged with his society, mm -hmm. I think it leads to better people and possibly better societies. Mm. You know, certainly, I think, you know, um, we're not just speaking from this historical perspective, but we're talking about something which is, in a way, very contemporary. Yes, very relevant. Yes. You know, and actually, the learning takes place in what can we learn from this engagement with a society. Yes. Yeah, and that I find very inspiring with the Buddha. As this process of, of uncovery and, and re, reinvestigation goes on, how do you think uh, new discoveries and new, new understandings will sit with those who have much of their effort invested in traditional models of the Buddha's teaching? I think it's going to be very difficult. I think um, I, I feel, even just from my own personal experience, you encounter quite a lot of antipathy if you start challenging um, traditional ways of reading things. Mm. You know, if you if you challenge, say, a Theravada model, yes. challenge a Mahayanist vision of the world, or, you know, yeah. again, I had this very personally in, in conducting this tour around, because often I was saying, actually, well, yes, that's what happened in the history of Buddhism, but it's not necessarily what the Buddha said. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and really, it's, it's challenging people to go back and look at those original sources, mm. you know, because... Mm. I suppose the one thing I think myself and others are really saying is not that we can actually really, really get back to exactly what the Buddha said, mm -hmm. but we can certainly give a reading of it, which is, is more useful in the contemporary era mm -hmm. than those traditionalist approaches. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you look, you know, for example, at Theravada Buddhism, um, one of the accusations about you know, this contemporary way of reading these texts is that people cherry-pick. Yeah. Well, actually, that's exactly what Theravada Buddhism did. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, I can give an equally plausible reading, as so many other people are doing this sort of work, to, I can give an equally plausible reading as Theravada Buddhism, mm. you know, or any other form of Buddhism, just by simply appealing to the same texts. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the thing is, it's, it's to help inquiry and engagement in something for me, that encourages that is to get people to go back to those sources themselves and see for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, and okay, that might be through translation, but the translations are improving. Yeah. Um, the teaching and conveyal of some of this material is improving. So, you know, I, I, you know again, it's work in progress, but I think you know, it's, it's something, it's, a, it's an exciting space to watch at the moment. Mm. 
Well, in, in the end, the the proof will be whether the the model works or not, right? That's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. Do do uh, is is the model that's coming up, if we want to call it a model at all? Yes. Is, yes. is it one which encourages people to engage and inquire? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. is it one that you know, just again becomes another dogmatism? Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I'm not interested in that. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, uh, this this opens uh, <laughs> this opens uh, like a Pandora box, you know. Yes. Uh, thinking about it in different directions, but let's just stick with the with the with the more simple one. Uh, transferring some of those basic features of the early teachings and uh, the way Buddha himself approached, as you say, from the from from a, from a useful reading of what we know, mm. uh, what kind of relationship uh, to the world and to our own practice does emerge which is directly relevant to our situation today, right. in very basic terms? So really what, what you're asking is what's emerging out of this reconfiguration that we're going yes. through at the moment. Yes. I. Well, here's a stab at it. Um, I wouldn't say this is a settled view, but let's have a stab at it this way. Which yes. is, I think what's going to emerge out of it is perhaps a more intense engagement, again, words I've used frequently through this interview so far, a more intense engagement with the teachings that don't actually have to rely on consolations. I think the religiousized view is very attractive and very appealing to a lot of people because it offers lots of consolations. Yes, yes. You know, even the consolation, in a sense, and let's take the classic one, which is, in a sense, rebirth. Um, even the consolation that there is a rebirth, even the consolation that there is, for example, a, a deathless. Yes. Um, all of these, and when they're misread, become religious. Mm-hmm. I think what we're getting in this reconfiguration is something that challenges all that and brings us back to humanness. Mm. Um, Not trying to evade what is actually going on in our lives. So so this basically directly encourages a, a psychological and existential maturity. That's right. That's right. And then, and then a, a, a willingness to be, uh, to be vulnerable, to be open? To be vulnerable, to be open, and to know that one is going to experience pain in this life. And in a sense, in a, in a sense, I think what we see again from this early reading of the text is the Buddha saying, don't try to evade it, embrace it. No way around the three characteristics, right? There's no way around it. That's absolutely right. You know, I, I, even in a recent interview I, I did, you know, I said, you know, I kind of paraphrased the Buddha's final words. He doesn't give a huge dispensation at the end of his life. He said, absolutely everything that you're going to encounter is impermanent. Now get on with life. Mm. <laughs> Yet, in a way, that's the psychological challenge because in a way we're almost driven to looking for certainties. Yeah. Um, no matter how subtle they might be. Yeah. Just something, and I'm not even talking about anything big here, but something perhaps you can grasp up to and say, well, that's not going to change. Yeah. Now, the Buddha is saying absolutely nothing is like that. Mm. Yeah, and that's why I say it lacks that consolation. Mm. 
So I, I, <laughs> I find in this more secularized reconfiguration of it, what we're getting is an actual grasping of humanity, mm. of living, living mm. without idealization. Uh, and I think that what is so unique about this message that the Buddha gives, he gives us very practical ways of being able to do that. Not easy, but very practical. So if there's anything, uh, to, in lack of a better word, ultimate to be found, is to be found in the midst of all that. That's right, yes. Yes, so it's not to be found in a sort of, I don't know, um, religious detachment mm -hmm. from it. Um, mm. it's, it's it's an accident of our languages, I think, particularly European languages, um, English, and in, in, in more more particularly, that because we all almost move into a bipolarity with language. You know, there's a synonym or is an antonym to something. So when we say, you know, one of the Buddha's messages not to be attached, then we move yeah. into the sense of detachment. And actually, yeah. that's not what the Buddha's saying at all. He's actually saying, actually, the opposite of attachment is correct engagement. Engagement. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. So that you move into life rather than, in a sense, retreat to its peripheries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the practical one of the practical tools for it, literally what I call the heart of it, is skills like um, like friendliness. Yes. Um, and the compassion that arises out of that friendliness. Yes. So I think we can get a very different picture to what I call religiousized Buddhism. I mean, these days, I don't even... Um, I have done through that through this interview, but I mean, often I don't even refer to the Buddha as the Buddha. I call him Mr. Gotama. Mr. Gotama. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> yeah, actually, the word Buddha is used very rarely in the text. Well, some of the younger Buddhists call him Sid. <laughs> well, even that, you know, Siddhartha actually only gets added to his name about 500 years after his death. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a, there's a bit of a political statement in that as well. It's true, yeah. So, uh, just for uh, to 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 cap this, uh, uh, when when we talk about this in this way, I see there is a lot of overlap between uh, these these qualities of no consolation, uh, deeper engagement, challenging, no evasion, etc. Yes. With some of the some of the core uh, values of humanism yes that we are very much familiar with from the european tradition that's right yeah uh, could could you could you address that a little bit yes i think i'm personally very um concerned to give perhaps much more humanistic um approach to buddhism but without reducing it to humanism mhm mm because I think there are elements within it, for example, the meditative skills and techniques and psychological dimensions of Buddhist practice, which are not there in humanism. That tend to go deeper. This tends to go much, much deeper. That's right. Yes. It's really, you know, for example, when, if we're talking about the ethics, the ethics doesn't arise out of just a shared consensual set of moral propositions, mm -hmm. um, which might be you know, agreed amongst humanists. It arises out of a deep understanding of, of psychology. Mm. But the ethics that we're talking about is actually a psychological ethics, not a not a prescriptive ethic. Mm -hmm. yeah, moralities, um, when we start to look at those, and we we see those are products of society, not necessarily of individual psychologies. Mm -hmm. And so, I think it's this emphasis on the psychological and really begin to understand processes that distinguishes it from what I call a very naive humanism often. 
Yeah. So we can build edifices, we can build structures, but we might actually be, be building our humanistic structures on something which actually is not real, and I don't mean in a big ontological sense, yeah. but is actually not deeply, you know, deeply investigated enough. Yes. Whereas I think what the Buddhist tradition, what this early tradition does, um, is really begin to understand the psychology behind experience. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Uh, uh, I enjoyed the, the interview immensely. I enjoyed and, it immensely uh, on my side as well. <laughs> after after we get some of the feedback from our audience, maybe we can do another one. Okay, that'd be fine. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.